This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Sheshla. Welcome, welcome. I guess this is the time where we say Shana Tova. I hope that you had a wonderful, meaningful, uplifting Rosh Hashanah period. And it's, it's amazing to see, you know, everybody talks about people leaving and where they're headed. It's wonderful to come into shul and see that the place is pumping and there's energy and enthusiasm, as we say in Hebrew. The heart of Israel is alive. And you really, really saw it. And I hope that that was your experience as well and that it was a meaningful and an uplifting period. And now we're in that strange and quite introspective time between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur where you're supposed to just, you know, just give it a little bit of thought. Not just thought to the fact that you're not going to eat next week. I know that people get very anxious about not eating on Yom Kippur. But surely there's more to it. Surely there's more to Yom Kippur than just simply not eating. So let's talk a little bit about that today. Um, I did have a little bit of fun earlier on social media, and maybe you can weigh in on this one as well. Without naming the shul or the rabbi, what was the theme, the worst theme of a Yom Kippur sermon that you were ever exposed to? We could start with that and then get into the more serious stuff in a couple of moments. As always, you are welcome to interact and to be part of the show. You are the show, and uh, we participate, we join, we discuss the number to call if you'd like to talk on air is 0101403020. You can send a message via Telegram on 0618951019. You can SMS 34519 or you could tweet at Chai FM. You could tweet me directly at Rabbi Shush. Before we get into the serious stuff of what is Yom Kippur, what should we focus on? Because I think it's appropriate at this time of the year. Everybody wants to maximize the opportunity and it is just around the corner. And perhaps along the way we can even talk about the Shabbos that's coming up in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. But before we do all of that, just simply for fun's sake, what was the worst theme or the worst message that you were ever exposed to at a Yom Kippur sermon? Remember, leave the rabbi and the shul's name out of it just for fun. And then we'll get serious after that. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Sheshla. So it's interesting, you never know how these things are going to go. And somebody immediately says, this time of the year, shouldn't we actually only be speaking kind words and remember to speak mostly positive? If there was a worst message, it won't help us or the people around us. It won't change the flow of life. Well, I definitely agree with that. I'm not looking over here to focus on the negative at all. In fact, on the contrary, the purpose of this question is because I think it's interesting. Very often, very often what happens is you have people who are in a position where they'll share, where they'll give, where they'll be responsible to inspire, and they don't necessarily know what it is that their community needs to hear, what their constituents need to hear. So that's why I asked the question, what is the worst message that you ever heard in a Yom Kippur sermon? Because believe it or not, somebody might believe that that is actually a brilliant message and maybe they were planning on sharing it. And exactly to that point, exactly to that point, somebody here replied and said the worst it was a Kol Nidre sermon where the rabbi screamed at everyone why they only show up on Yom Kippur. I wonder if that's something that's played out in a few places around the world, in a, in a few shuls around the world. I mean, think about it. Here are people who've made the effort. 
Yes, so go ahead and say it's only one day of the year. But the fact of the matter is people have made the effort. They have come to Shul. And to me, it's more than just simply making the effort. The person who walks into Shul on Yom Kippur, and certainly the person who fasts, is identifying with heritage. It's a person who is effectively saying, this is my home. This is where I belong. To me, that's that's why Yom Kippur is such an inspiring day. I, I find Yom Kippur literally to be the best day on the calendar from a Jewish perspective. Really, it is. It's the best, best day, not because it's the day when, you know, I, I think a lot of rabbis, it's like, oh, I'm now going to send send out my best sermon and really move everybody to tears or people who maybe the chazan wants to just let rip and show everybody what kind of a voice he has. To me, Yom Kippur is such an amazing day because it it shows where we really are. You know, during the rest of the year, we're busy, we're stressed, we're distracted. There are all kinds of things going on. And we land up in places that are not necessarily the truth of who we are in the core of our being. Yom Kippur is like this coming home. Somebody mentioned it to me the other day. They said, you know that you've you've done well in terms of creating an atmosphere in a shul. So you know you've done well when a person might not have been in that shul for ages months, perhaps even years, and when they do walk through the door again, they naturally just feel at home, both, I suppose, from the perspective of of being in touch with the, the service, being familiar with the service, but also being a feeling from the, from the people who are there that you're home, this is, this is where you belong, and to me, Yom Kippur is a day which is very much about that, it's people saying, this is where we belong, we go all over the place, I suppose, much like a person whose children have emigrated, on the odd occasion that they come back to visit, which is not nearly as often as we would like it to be, does anybody say, you only come once a year? Can you imagine that? Imagine a parent who said that to their childhood emigrate and is living on the other side of the ocean, and they make that effort, and they schlep all the way across the world, and they come to spend a period of time with the parents, and the parents say, that's it? You only come once a year? It's, it's, it's completely misguided. This is like, wow, okay, now I know, now I know that I'm worth schlepping all the way across the world for. I know that you still consider this Home, in a sense. Obviously, you have your home, but this, this is home. This is your place. This is where you you feel welcome, you feel loved, where you have incredible memories, where you resonate. And that's what Yom Kippur is. Yes, there is discomfort associated with Yom Kippur. There's the discomfort of sitting through a service in a foreign language. There's the discomfort of not eating and drinking. There's the discomfort of not knowing when to stand or sit or maybe having to be there for longer than you wanted to. Yes, absolutely. Nobody said that coming home is always fun and always comfortable. So for a person to get up on Yom Kippur and then lambast the crowd for only coming on that day, is it's, it's terribly misguided. First of all, what are the chances that they're going to want to come back again if that's the treatment that they have? Surely a person will be attracted to come back to a place where they're encouraged, where they may say, okay, I appreciate that you put in the effort. Personally, if it were me, I would do more, but that's me. But I appreciate that you put in the effort, and I acknowledge the fact that you, and I respect the fact that you put in the effort. So <clears throat> that's why it's interesting how a conversation about the worst kind of sermon theme could actually be a great opener into what the deeper message of this time of the year is. We're headed towards Yom Kippur. Everybody is going to be involved. That's how it is. It fascinates me. There was an article that I came across recently on the Internet, and it was uh, about a little hick town. I don't even remember the name of the town. Somewhere in Western Australia. And this particular media outlet had caught up with a Jewish guy living in this town, and they told his story, and they then juxtaposed it against the story of the religious community in Melbourne, Australia. So it's two ends of the continent, right? You've got Melbourne is on the southeast, and this guy was somewhere in the far west, and Melbourne is this 
pumping Jewish community and everything that you need and more than a dozen kosher restaurants and shuls and schools and strimals and whatever you want. And here was a guy living in this little hick town, and as far as he knows, he's the only Jewish person there. And they were just comparing. It was like this juxtaposed interview between various per- people, but he was the anchor. This, this individual was the anchor. And what was interesting about the article is that here you're talking about a person who there's not even a question in his mind that he doesn't go to shul because there is no shul to go to. If he wanted to go to shul, he'd have to hop on a plane and fly to Perth, which is the closest city, and there he'd be able to find a shul. But where he is, it's out of the question. And during the course of the interview, they asked him the question about Yom Kippur. So what do you do on Yom Kippur? Because there's no shul right in people's minds. Like you have to go to shul on Yom Kippur, which is correct. You do. You, you, you've got to be there. I mean, it's like really important. Although the Torah does not say thou shalt go to shul on Yom Kippur. It's more, to me, it's, it's more than an instruction. In other words, there are certain things you do because you're told to do them, and there are other things that you do in spite of not being told to do them. So nobody had to tell you to do them. It's like a magnet. You're drawn naturally to that direction, to that place. So anyhow, so they asked him in, in this article, they asked this fellow, so what do you do about, about Yom Kippur? And there's no shul to go to. There's no other Jewish people around. What do you do? And he's very clearly not observant in the slightest. There is nothing, no vestige of Judaism in his daily experience. So he says, on Yom Kippur, are you kidding? On Yom Kippur, I lie in bed the whole day and fast. And to me, that's phenomenal. Here's a person who is not going to participate in any formal way, but would not dare not to participate. Isn't that amazing? I think it's beautiful. And that's, that's a lot of what Yom Kippur is about. Yom Kippur is this day which says, doesn't matter who I am, where I, are, where I am, what decisions I've made in my life. Those things are technically irrelevant. What's relevant is that if you dig down deeply enough, you'll find at my core, you'll find this immutable part of who I am that can't be exchanged. It can't be lost. It's this indestructible internal Jew. And actually, that's who I am. Actually, in spite of all the stuff and the hang-ups that I have and the disengagement that I might feel, actually, that is who I am. And that's why Yom Kippur is such a powerful day, because it's the day we touch the essence of our beings. However we express it, one person expresses it by being in shul all day and saying every word in the machzor. Another person expresses it by going into a meditative state, but they wouldn't dare to eat because fasting on Yom Kippur is like really important, whatever it is. And I'm not justifying one kind of behavior and saying that that's good enough. I'm not judging that kind of behavior either. But the theme right throughout is this theme of connection. It's this theme of getting back to the raw basics of who we are when you remove the makeup. Who are we really on the inside? When we look in that existential mirror, on Yom Kippur, we say, who is this person? Not me, the business person, not me, the professional, not me, the father, mother, uncle, aunt. Who am I at the core of my being? I think it's something really, really powerful. What about you? What's, uh, how would you define what's the magic, the power, the allure, the magnetism of Yom Kippur? What, what is it for you? What brings you into the Yom Kippur experience? What speaks to you about the Yom Kippur experience? You can SMS 34519. Send a message on Telegram on 0618951019. You can tweet at Chai FM. Or directly to me at Rabbi Shish. And you can call the studio on 0101403020. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. What a horrible thing. Somebody's just said that the worst 
the Yom Kippur sermon that they ever heard was when the rabbi opened with a joke that was not really a joke. It was actually quite offensive to a particular group of people who were disadvantaged in the community. Ouch. Ouch. That's bad. That's bad, right? And, <laughs> wow. Okay. I guess sometimes people can miss the mark. Sometimes people can be a little bit tone deaf. Let's switch it around now. Okay, so that deals with the worst sermon. It's not really what I wanted to fixate on. But let's talk more about what is it for you? What is this day of Yom Kippur? It's so fascinating to me, you know. People speak about how it's a atonement and asking for forgiveness. So I had an interesting conversation with a guest at our table on the second night of Rosh Hashanah. And it really is the kind of conversation that gets you thinking. It's, it's a bit generalized, so it's about Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It's about the theme. The person is a, a thinker, a person who's had a lot of, a lot of life experience. Um, and he asked this question. He said, why is it? And I'd love to hear your thoughts. How would you answer this question if it was at your table? Okay, so let's assume it was a guest at your table. And they asked you this question. And give it some thought to us for a second and, and, and shoot off an answer because I'd love to hear how you would have addressed it. So this person asked the question. He says, why is it that over the course of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we beg and plead for the things that we need? And basically what he was saying is, we're talking about God over here. Is that what he expects of us? Is that is is God narcissistic? Is God cruel? D does God want us to get down on our hands and knees, which we actually do on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and say, oh my goodness, we've been so terrible, and we've done this wrong, and we've done that wrong, and we're not deserving, but please give us what we need. And then you read all that stuff, like Unasane Toikif, which for many people is one of the most poignant and powerful parts of the service and i say specifically for some people because there are other people who do not necessarily feel the same way that's subject for another conversation but you look there and you talk about who will die in the right time and who not in the right time who by fire and who by water and people think like what is this are we dealing with some kind of a massive control i don't even want to use the expression are we, are we looking, are we dealing with some kind of a sadistic character who says, unless you really convince me that I should bless you for the coming year, forget about it. You're going to just have an absolutely horrendous year. And by extension, when it comes to Yom Kippur and everybody's pounding away on their chests and waving their fists in the sky and tearful and, and feeling horrible, is, is that the intention? Is that, is that what we're supposed to do? Yeah, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are supposed to be days that we just feel absolutely insecure because we don't know what kind of sadistic things God might line up for us in the coming year unless we really sort out our act. And that's so difficult because the expectations are so high. So it's quite fascinating you know, when you start to look at it. What are we trying to do? What are we trying to achieve over here? What is this exercise? What is the exercise of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? It, you know, have we reduced our relationship with God to purely human terms? I've wronged somebody. Oh my gosh, I'd better apologize and I'd better be contrite and maybe I should overcompensate. And here's another thing I suppose that comes into this conversation is people making all kinds of commitments at this time of the year. Now, it's healthy and it's appropriate for a person to make some kind of a resolution for the coming year. You know, something I'm going to try and do better. Although the word try is in itself a little bit troublesome because if you say the word try, you're almost implying that you're not actually going to do it. So, 
I'm going to do these things. Right? It's appropriate. It's appropriate for a person to take some kind of a resolution for the new year. But then when it comes to this teshuva concept, which is a big theme, at this time of the year, the, day, the days that start from Rosh Hashanah and conclude on Yom Kippur are called the 10 days of Teshuvah. Most people will tell you that Teshuvah is repentance, and most people imagine that repentance is a lot about apologizing, and it's a lot about feeling negative about where you've been, and hopefully feeling positive about where you could be. I once heard a beautiful definition of Teshuvah, or the process of how a person approaches Teshuvah, and that's basically to think, what needed to be done? What could I have done, and what did I do? So that's like this self-check process that you go through during the course of doing Teshuvah. So again, it's what needed to be done, what was the objective in its most pristine state, what could I have done, that's looking at my own abilities and potential, what did I do in reality? And that gives us a healthy sense of, of how we should feel about how the past year went. So is that what we're trying to do up here, to feel really rotten about ourselves? Oh my gosh, I, you know. And then we sit there and we, we bang our chests and we say, for this sin and for that sin, for the next sin. And the implication over there is, I'm never going to do it again. I'm never going to do it again. And then you wonder, well, am I never going to do it again? I mean, if we're honest about it, it's almost as if you're saying to God, listen, I know and you know that I'm going to be back next year with the same list making the same apologies without necessarily having shifted fundamentally. So what's the game all about? And that was the question that this person was asking at the table on Rosh Hashanah night. I was going, what's the game all about? Like, what, what, what does God expect? What, does he want us to beg? Does he get some kind of pleasure out of us begging? So either we're begging for things or we're begging for life or we're begging for forgiveness. Is that what Hashem wants from us? And, I, and I'll tell you what I thought about it. I'll, I'll share that obviously. But I'm, I'm really curious if anybody has a thought. Maybe it's a bit too daunting. I see that nobody's rushing to respond with a, a suggestion. Maybe it is too daunting. Maybe it's uh, too hectic to commit to the 140 characters of an SMS. <laughs> so let's see. Let's see if anybody's brave enough or, or, or thoughtful. You can call in. Obviously, on 01-01-40-3020, that's an option. If you don't have enough words in an SMS or you find it difficult maybe to commit it to the written word, sometimes the spoken word is easier. What do you tell a person who has that kind of a question? Why does God want us to beg? Why does he insist that we have to get together on this time of the year, stuff into shul, sit there for a long time, and pretty much during that whole time say, Please, please let us live. Please let us be healthy. Please let there be enough money in the account. Please let the world not be exposed to, and there's a whole list of things, pestilence and illness and war and all, all that kind of thing. And then we come to Yom Kippur. Please, please forgive us. Uh, we've done things that were out of line. Please, please forgive us. It's like a really, really interesting kind of a psychology, right? And this person was saying, keep people fearful. And they'll keep coming back because everybody's too afraid to do otherwise. What, what are the chances? <laughs> what are the chances? You know, so maybe you, maybe you step out of line. Maybe you get this whole thing wrong. And then life is going to be absolutely terrible. And if it's not going to be terrible in this world, well, maybe it's going to be terrible in the next world. So he was saying maybe the psychology is just simply keep everybody really fearful. That way they'll have no alternative but to participate because the concern about what the alternative might be is real so great that's how we'll keep numbers up and that's how we'll keep participation guarantee participation (laughs) 
it's really, really something to think about. It was interesting because the following day, that was the second night of Rosh Hashanah, and the following day of Rosh Hashanah, I landed up bumping into another fellow. I was doing the rounds, uh, going to see people who were unable to get to shul and blowing shofar for them. And I bumped into a fellow, and he was the exact opposite end of the same conversation. And he was like, you do understand, of course, that all of these things that we say about the next world, nobody can prove. So it's just simply a way to scare everybody into submission. So I suppose this is a, a very valid conversation. It's an important conversation. And if we get it right... And we have a, have a deeper insight and understanding. Hopefully we get to Yom Kippur and we have a different experience of Yom Kippur and it's enriched and it's, and it's deep and it's meaningful and it's uplifting. So what would you say? You can call the studio 0101403020. You can send a message on Telegram 0618951019 or you could SMS 34519 or you could tweet at FM. You could tweet me directly at Rabbi Shish. If you have just joined us, it's Fresh Thinking, as it is on Thursdays between 2 and 3 p.m. We always like to try and see things just a little differently to how they appear at face value. So you're welcome to participate. It's a conversation. It's not just simply about uh, me, you know, lecturing, sermonizing. There's enough people sermonizing at this time of the year. So what would you say to the person who says, why, why all the begging, why all the begging? So let's talk about that. Let's talk about this for a second. Are we begging? Is that, is that what we're supposed to do? You know what's interesting is we tend to read things through our personal filters. We tend to see things through our personal lenses. In other words, there's an old cliche. We don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. So that's really something to think about. When a person, you and I might read the exact same words in the Mahsar, you might read it one way and think it's the most incredible insight, and I might read it a different way and think it's the most overwhelming concept. And it's not even necessarily a matter of who's right and who's wrong. It's a matter of how we perceive. So when people look at the the, the requests that we make on Rosh Hashanah or the atonement process that we go through at this time of the year leading up to and on Yom Kippur, different people will perceive it differently. And to me, the starting point is this. The starting point is, let's just think for a moment. Just just think about this for a second. It's actually quite humorous when you when you actually think about it. Okay? Just think about this for a moment. You're standing in front of God talking to God. Pause. Pause for a minute. Why? Why are you doing this? Why are you reading these words? Why are you speaking to thin air? Must be because you believe. You believe in something. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing it. If you do not believe in this stuff, you wouldn't be doing it. So you believe in what? You believe on Rosh Hashanah that you're speaking to who? Who are you speaking to? Not the person next to you, right? You, you get yourself a seat in shul next to the wealthiest guy in shul in the hope that maybe you could speak to him and set up a business deal. That's not what we're talking about. You take out that book. You open it up. You start to read the prayers. Who are you talking to? Who are you talking to? You're talking to God, right? And you're asking God for things that you need. Pause for a second. Are you suggesting that God does not know what you need? Is that the suggestion? You're, you're telling him stuff that he doesn't know. You're informing him. Hello, God? I'd just like you to know what's been happening in my life. The last year was not great. The economy was in a shambles. The po political instability in the community was like really, you know, getting to me. <laughs> God, I don't know if you know these things. 
don't know if you know what's been going on. Number one. Number two, I, I don't know if you know what I need just to make me feel a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more secure about my future. So, you know what? Let me explain to you, God. I'll take you through it. I'll take you through it. This is what's been going on. This person hasn't been well. That issue, trouble in Israel, global anti-Semitism on the rise, whatever. God, here's the fact sheet. I'll give you an audit of how the year has been. Then I'll tell you the things that I believe that I need. And I hope this is uh, not going to come as a major shock to you, but this is what's going on in my head. Are we kidding ourselves? You're going to tell God stuff. You're going to inform him, right? That's what we're going to do. We're going to inform him of what's been going on. The all-knowing God, and we say that in our prayers, in the same prayers where we ask Hashem for everything, in those same prayers we say, He knows everything. We're going to say those words in very clear terms on Yom Kippur. Everything is obvious and revealed and known to you. And we say that. So you've got to think, hey, hang on a second. I'm reading in the same book, in the same prayer service, at the same time of the year. I'm reading that God knows everything. And in that same service, I'm telling him stuff as if he doesn't know it. Oh, let's go back a step. And then we understand, of course, that different people will ask for different things. At this time of the year, if you believe absolutely that this is a time of the year where you should be asking for things. So one person might be asking for their business to go well, and the other person might be asking for their daughter to find a shidduch. And the next person might be asking that they should be blessed with a baby. And the next person might be asking for the wisdom to decide which country they should live in. And the next person might be asking for stability in in the world politics, I don't know, different people. So the fact that you have a certain priority set, a certain thing that you think is the most important prayer, and I suppose everybody would have a different answer. There'd be certain common answers, but what is your most important thing to pray for this year? The fact that you have that particular priority set is why. Is why. Well, it's basically going to be two factors. It's going to be because of your circumstances and because of how you're wired. So your circumstances will bring you to a point where you feel, right now, this is what I need. The person who's gone through a terrible time financially is going to feel that a compelling thing to pray for on Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur is financial stability. And a person who has been through a health challenge is going to believe that the most important thing to pray for is good health. So those are circumstances that would have brought a person to a particular thing that they're going to ask for. And the same thing is when it comes to the way that you're wired, right? Some people are wired to care more about family than they care perhaps about the country. So they'll be praying for family, and other people might care more about the macrocosm. So they'll be praying for the well-being of the world and the environment and so on and so forth more than they'll pray for their, for their families or whatever. Now, who wired us? And who created those circumstances? Yes, we do make choices, and based on those choices, we land ourselves in certain circumstances. And even then, if you really think about it, if you do a proper audit, the circumstances that we land in are partly due to our choices and primarily due to extraneous factors that we don't control. So, the reason I'm asking for certain things this year at Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is because of my circumstances and because of the way that I'm wired and I didn't choose either of those. I might have chosen a little bit of how I got into my circumstances. I chose nothing of how I'm, how I'm wired. So in other words, I'm going to stand up on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and tell God things about my circumstances that are actually the things He chose to make my circumstances. So it's not just that I'm informing the all-knowing God. I'm standing here informing the one who's made it happen, who brought me to this point, who put me into this situation, who wired my brain to have this particular outlook. 
Same thing. So we get up over there in Yom Kippur and we start pounding our chest and we say, I'm sorry I did this and I'm sorry I did that. I'm sorry I did this. Yes, of course, 100% there's a concept of choice and we own our choices. That is a fundamental principle of Judaism is that we own our choices. Yet, the fact that your vice is different to my vice is because of how we're wired. So one person, their greatest challenge in their spiritual development is procrastination and laziness. And another person, their greatest barrier to spiritual growth is their temper. Who wired you that way? Why is it that this person is always feeling bad? Oh, my gosh, I got so angry with people. I was so quick to judge. And that person's always saying, I just couldn't get myself motivated. I couldn't get myself going. I didn't do as much as I should have done. Who wired you that way? So you're going to stand there and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But at the same time, very much like on Rosh Hashanah, we're telling God things that God already knows. So what is the exercise? What are we trying to achieve over here? Are we trying to change Hashem's mind? He was going to give us a difficult year. So now we're going to convince him and negotiate our way to a good year. He was going to punish us, but now we're going to convince him that we, we really feel remorseful and therefore he should forgive us. I got news for you. He can see right through it all and he'll know genuine remorse or not genuine remorse. He'll know deserving or not deserving in the most perfectly calibrated system. So what are we actually trying to achieve at this time of the year? I think this fellow at the Rosh Hashanah table asked a brilliant question and it should not be about begging and pleading because begging and pleading frames things in such a way as if God does not know the circumstances, does not know the options, does not know what I'm going through, does not know what the best outcome should be. So I have to convince him. What a terrible thought. I have to convince God to know what's right. He knows all kinds of things about me that I don't even know. He knows all kinds of things about the options available to me that I'll never understand. We go down a particular path in life when we never know what the alternative paths could have been. So, this position of begging and pleading and pounding our chests from a perspective as if we're trying to convince God about something sounds a little bit misguided. In that case, it begs the question, so what should we be doing to have a meaningful experience at this time of the year, particularly on Yom Kippur? I'd love to hear your thoughts or insights or suggestions by SMS on 34519, messages on Telegram to 0618951019, tweets at Chai FM, and you can call the studio 0101403020. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. Okay, just uh, because we started with a question, I had asked the question about the worst sermon. Somebody's tweeted over here, what about the best or worst Yom Kippur davening service? I think it is a valid question, um, maybe a little bit beyond the scope of what we're talking about now. So at this point, we're talking about thank you. It is nice to have that kind of insight and feedback, but I'm going to have to leave it for now because what we're talking about right now is, and, and maybe it does talk to this about the best or worst kind of prayer service maybe is this, this business of begging and pleading and, and, and almost coming from a position as if to say God is almost not willing to budge unless we can convince him to do so. Now, there's a beautiful saying in the Talmud where it says it uses a metaphor of the cow and the calf, how the cow wants to feed even more than the calf wants to suckle. And the Talmud effectively and various the commentaries in the Talmud relate this to this to the concept of how how Hashem relates, how God relates to us. And and it's very important that we realize this. God wants to bless. That's the position. That's the opening position. Is that God wants to bless us. Right? 
and the to to walk into shul with an attitude that says i think i'm going to have to convince hashem to give me good things is almost an insult that's like a child walking in from school and saying i'm going to have to convince my mother to feed me <laughs> can you imagine such a thing all a mother wants to do is to feed her child of course it's not only her responsibility it's her pleasure it's a joy to be able to look after her children yes she'll have her moments that's because she's human god isn't so in Hashem's world, we say, Oilam chesed yibane. The world was built on kindness. We say, Toiv Hashem lakol verachamov al kol maisa. We say that three, day, three times a day in our prayers, that God is good to all and His compassion extends to all of His creations. Our opening position is God is benevolent. God wants to bless us. God wants us to be connected with him and him to us, which is effectively the concept of atonement and forgiveness. He wants Rav Lisloach is the expression we use. He is quick or bountiful in his forgiveness. So to walk in with an attitude that says, I'm treading here on thin ice, please, for your good graces, is a little bit insulting to God. Uh, got to just step out of this for half a second because I said that a lot of what happens to us is because of our circumstances and because of how we're wired. So here's a message on Telegram that says, if Hashem decides what we are going to choose, what is the point of him giving us a choice? So I just want to be clear. I never said that he chose or decided what we're going to choose. He decided how we would be wired. In other words, what our predispositions would be, what kind of personality, character, what kind of primary interests and primary challenges we would have. He also constructs on a constant basis the circumstances that surround us, and all that is left for us is our choices. We choose then how much to improve, how much to give in, how much to be influenced by our circumstances, and how much to influence our circumstances. All we have left is choice. So I'm glad you asked that question because it helps to be able to clarify the topic. So coming back, when we walk into shul over Rosh Hashanah or over Yom Kippur, the framing position has to be God wants us in his home. He wants us to talk and interact with him. And he wants us to be able to be in a position to receive his blessings. And that's the key of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. How do we get into the correct position to align with the stream of his blessings? So rather than to believe that we're going to convince God to bless us, he will bless us. He'll bless us most likely with what we need rather than what we want. The question really is, how do we align with the stream or the potential of that blessing? So over the course of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and the days in between, which is the period that we're in now, we're supposed to reflect on that. Am I aligned? Am I in the right position to receive that flow of blessing? To put it into simpler terms, because how do I align myself? To put it into simpler terms, am I the kind of person who God would want to direct those brochas at? You know, think of it like this. Think of a parent and a child. So every parent loves their child absolutely. There are times where the parent has to say, listen, I'm not giving you what you want right now because you're not the person. You're not right now being the person 
who should be getting that. So, for example, a parent who is good and on their game will know that you don't reward bad behavior. So if the child is non-compliant or the child is throwing a tantrum or the child is being disrespectful, then the correct thing from the parent's point of view is to say, right now, you should not be getting X and Y. Not because I don't love you, not because you don't really deserve it, but right now you're not aligned. The kind of behavior that you're exhibiting right now is not the kind of behavior that I, in good conscience, can reward with the things that I really would love to give you. So I would love to right now give you actually what you want. I'd actually like to give it to you right now. But I need to teach you that this is not the appropriate way to align with my love. This is not the appropriate way for you to behave if you want to receive something from me. Now, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is all about that. It's not about second-guessing God or imagining, gee, I hope I've screamed loudly enough. I really hope I made my point clear. I hope he understands what I need. Or I hope that he's not going to hurt me for the terrible things that I have read in this book that I've done. But rather, this whole exercise from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur is about, am I aligned? Am I in the right place? Is my head right? There's a story that they tell about a particular chassid who came to the Alter Rebbe, the first Chabad Rebbe, and he had a, a series of things that he needed in his life, he had various difficulties, and he had a serious, uh, uh, he had serious things that he needed to ask a brocha for. And he presented all of these things to his Rebbe, and his Rebbe, Rebbe Shnei Zalman, the first Chabad Rebbe, said to him, you are quick to speak about what you need, but how much have you considered what is needed of you? It's exactly what this period is all about. We are. We, it, it's, it's a natural reaction. It's like a natural thing on our behalf. We want to make sure that we're taken care of. We want to make sure that we have the things that we need. It's a new year coming. We understand that things are determined from now for the coming year. So we want to make sure that we're aligned properly. We want to make sure that we're in the, in, in the good seats, you know, to make, sh- to, to, to really get the first delivery of brocha for the coming year. That's great. It's, it's human nature to want to do that. But believe it or not, the way that we do that is not by stating what is needed. It's not by being first on the list for delivery. It's not by sitting, so to speak, uh, with a with a a wish list and saying, "God, here, pick pick at least the first three for me." It's actually about saying, "How do I shift myself?" Because if I had a rough year last year, the most wise and advisable thing for me to do would be to shift myself. I don't control the year. I don't control my circumstances. I do control me. So let me try and shift myself. Let me try and align myself. Let me try and uh, strengthen and deepen the connection that I have with the source of blessings. Not because there's a withholding of blessings, but because there are so many blessings. And it only makes sense to align with them. There's so much love and acceptance and forgiveness from Hashem. It only makes sense for me to align with that. That's what I'm trying to do. This is the meaning of the word teshuva, as we'll chat about in a moment. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. So that's the meaning of the word teshuva. You see the key word that everybody uses at this time of the year. That is often bandied around to mean repentance, which for people sounds like, you know, you've got to be fasting. Well, we do. We do fast on Yom Kippur. And it sounds like you've got to feel really terrible about yourself and you've got to express all this regret, which is all true. It's all absolutely true. But the goal and objective, and as I said earlier, we look at things through our lenses. Sometimes we see words or we see 
um, expectations and we translate them to mean things that they don't necessarily mean. If a person apologizes to their spouse, it's not because they think that their spouse is an ogre who's going to kill them if they don't apologize. It's because they value the relationship and they recognize that now they've, they're in, uh, they, they're misaligned at this point in time. And, They've got to realign themselves. The, the root, and I'm sure you've heard this millions of times, but the root of the word teshuva is to return. Return implies that there's a healthy space you were once in. Each of us, when we entered this world in our innocent state, we were aligned. We had nothing to misalign us from God. We were aligned. We come from a state of purity. We say this every single morning in our morning prayers. We say, God, the soul that you put into me, tohoira he. It is pure. We don't say it was pure. And now it's tainted. We say our soul is pure. Our soul is aligned. The goal of the Yom Kippur experience is to be conscious of the alignment that our soul automatically, inherently has. And that's why right at the beginning we were talking about people coming to Shul and Yom Kippur. It's a, it's a, it's a, it, that's exactly what it is. That is what it is. It's saying, here I am. This is me. This is where I belong. This is my place of alignment. So I know that during the course of the year, I veered and I will veer, and that's just the factor of being human. But let's just make this clear. When I veer, first of all, I try each year to do so less frequently or less dramatically. So I try not to go so far afield, and I try not to go away so often. But what I really want I really want to be here. There's a story about under the communist regime, I think it was. Yes, under the communist regime, there was a guy who was quite critical about members of the community who went to work on Yom Kippur, and he complained to his rabbi. And the rabbi said, I'll tell you a story. So there were once two farmers with adjoining farms, and they both farmed chickens. And the one fellow noticed that slowly, slowly his chickens were depleting and he couldn't understand what was happening, where they were going, and he made sure that the fences were good so there was no foxes breaking in. And after a while he started to suspect that his neighbor had been stealing his chickens and he summons the neighbor to court. And the judge said, listen, the way we're going to deal with this is each of you are going to bring your chickens bound to the courtroom and we'll decide from there. And they did. And then the judge ordered them to release the chickens and he watched which direction did they walk to which wick towards which farmer. And he said, well, it's obvious that the, the farmer towards which the chickens have walked is obviously the true owner. And this rabbi said it's the same thing. You know, these people living under the communist regime, they go to work for one simple reason, because they're bound, because they're chained, because they are, there are forces that work on them that they don't feel that they have the capacity to overcome. Release those chains, you'll see exactly where they go. That's home. And we all have those chains. And Yom Kippur is the one day of the year that we let go of those chains and we do come home and it's just a reminder for us this is home this is where we belong this is where our alignment lies and the whole course of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is to try and say let me try and stay a little bit more aligned like that for the rest of the year then I'll be aligned with God I'll have an amazing year please God the, the blessings will flow and please God We'll only have good things. So I'd like to wish you Gemar Chasim May you have a meaningful and an easy fast. And please God, the most incredible brochas, both spiritually and as a result of that, materially in the coming year.